Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I'm in the bath, literally in the bath, and, and on the thumbnails on YouTube, it had how to apply for a PCT permit, and I had no idea you needed one. And I clicked on it, and this guy was explaining the process, and he said, there's only one day a year you can apply. So, of course, I Google it, and it's that bloody day in three hours' time. So, I just ran upstairs all naked, very overweight, tap, 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 learned everything I needed to do in those three hours, like how to put off fire, how to start a fire, <laughs> you know, all of these leave no trace principles all of these certificates and then three hours later I got thrown into the lottery and got one of the lucky tickets you know thousands apply and only 3,000 people get tickets and and I think that year at least 12,000 had applied you know when you're on the right path because things just go smooth things just just aren't hard work and and all of a sudden it was like right I'm going to go do this and I'm really not fit or anything and and the only training I could think to do was eat lots of cake because it was like well I'm going to need the calories so I just ate even more cake Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame and I am your host. And before we get started with our fabulous guest today, I would like to remind everyone that you can support this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and giving us a five-star rating and review. That is podcast currency. So all I ask is for a moment of your time to go and subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us so, so much. Thank you. All right. Here we go. Person Irresponsible, or PI, describes herself as having been, quote, fat, funny, 40-something, and in her fourth year of recovery when she felt an unfathomable urge to walk across America. Previously, she had hiked from the sofa to the fridge and back and considered camping to be a loathsome pursuit. She was also a confirmed nicotine addict and had never even considered climbing the UK's highest mountain, a 4,000-footer called Ben Nevis. And yet, something drew her to the Pacific Crest Trail. She didn't fully realize just how big a mistake she'd made until she made her way up the first mountain in Southern California. And if all that wasn't bad enough, a global pandemic broke out in the middle of the excursion, leaving her to be one of the very few people to remain in the wilderness. P.I. relied on everything she'd been taught in the AA Fellowship to haul herself from Mexico to Canada. She then set about writing a book on how 12-step thinking kept her her from succumbing to the mental demons that lurked within. She called the book Everything You Ever Taught Me to honor her fellow alcoholics who have recorded their stories and wisdom in podcast format. She had listened to at least one podcast each day, and it was their voices that kept her company day after laborious day, always reminding her that the 12 steps are a program for living that truly work in all circumstances. I loved this episode. Person Irresponsible has an incredibly inspiring story and also incredibly reachable. It is chock full of sobriety lessons that we all can take home with us, even though her situation, many of us have not hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. I really encourage you to look for the similarities, not the differences, and to listen for the gems of wisdom that she pulled out of this experience that can be applied to our everyday lives. And for any women out there who have a goal they're afraid of conquering, here is your story, your sign that you can do it too. So without further ado, I give you person irresponsible. Let's do this. You're 
You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. All right. Person Irresponsible, PI, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for inviting me. It's such an honor. I'm so thrilled. Really excited. And I want to start with your name, which I'm sure you expected. Tell us a little (laughs) bit about PI, Person Irresponsible, and why and how it is that you chose that name and why you go by that name. Uh, Yeah, it's a fairly straightforward thing to answer, but it's slightly complicated. As you know, as I'm sure you know, I'm a a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And part Mm -hmm. of being an AA is the traditions. And one of the traditions says that the level of persuading film, we should maintain our anonymity. Well, this is kind of hard to do in the modern era, except for the fact that I walked across America in 2020. And one part of the culture of being a through hiker, i.e. walking from one end of the country to the other, is that you have a trail name. So I had the trail name PI and I thought, right, I'll stick with that. Uh, and I wrote a book and I wrote the book under my trial name. So I thought, well, this this all just rolls out the carpet nice and easily. So I can actually keep my privacy. I can keep my anonymity on my day-to-day life, but I can actually do the press and all of that stuff because uh, I obviously am a big fan of AA. It, it has changed my life phenomenally. And it was the 12-step philosophy that really, you know, I am not an athlete by anyone's sort of estimation. And yet it was that 12-step philosophy that helped me walk across America for, you know, nigh on six months alone. So yeah. That's awesome. Incredible. And and I feel the same way about, about the program. And well, how did you pick your trail name? Well, I sort of already had it anyway. So I had a little company where I would do little challenges and little dares, and then I'd write about them. And I always said to people, you know, if you, if you want to complain about anything I write or anything I do, you can just write to person irresponsible and they probably won't get back to you. But hey, they're irresponsible and they're a person. So what can you do? And so I sort of always just went along with that and just wrote from that perspective. And it was just that sort of in-joke that, you know, and, you know, as most people know, I, these days, you know, now I'm saying I'm a little bit more responsible than I've ever been, but I still have my, my moments of madness like for example walking across america thinking that would be a good idea that was a a moment that turned into six months of madness so tell me how long have you been clean and sober so my sobriety date is the 4th of june 2016 so i've just passed my six year mark and uh, and who knew that was possible you know i i didn't i didn't join ia to come and hang around for six years that's for sure i joined you know with the idea of just staying for about 28 days that was the plan and thankfully the plan went very very wrong and uh, so i'm still coming back and, and working now on getting the seventh chip one day awesome. at a time. congratulations what was your last drink like my last drink was quite epic it was (laughs) i said it was quite epic i'd had a really bad day you know one of those days where it's fine everybody will understand that you need to drink on this because that's really the only strategy i had to cope with bad days and but i had already joined aa by then i'd been in aa for for 10 weeks and uh, and that process of ruining my drinking had begun and although i hadn't drunk for 10 weeks you know i was not an alcoholic so you know much of what they said didn't apply to me uh but i Although I joined for 
for 28 days. You know, I just kept thinking, you know, the benefits of this not drinking is kind of working for me. But then, like I say, 10 weeks later, I had this bad day. So, and I was I was living in Edinburgh, Scotland at the time. And unlike in England, there's a rule, there's a law in, in Scotland that says you can't drink after 10 o'clock or you can't buy drink after 10 o'clock, I should say. So I decided to hold on to my coffee table because we know that no human power can relieve our difficulties, but apparently wooden coffee tables stand a chance. And, uh, <laughs> and I was holding on to this thinking, please, God, please, you know, I don't want to drink on this. Yes, I want to drink on this. I'll understand that I need to drink on this. No, I'm not going to drink on this. I'll just get to 10 o'clock and then I'll be fine. And at one minute past 10, I jumped in my car, drove to England to buy booze. <laughs> Realised that that was slightly <laughs> insane. And so I drove home again and then drove back to England again and then drove home again. And this went on all night and I bounced backwards and forwards over the border. And then at six o'clock in the morning, I walked across the road from my house and bought alcohol in the local shop and then sat and looked at it, you know, like a cat intent on eating a bird until six o'clock that night because I had this six o'clock rule. If you drank before six, you're an alcoholic. And if you drank after six, you were perfectly sophisticated. So that was that was the, the story of my last drink. So then by, you know, the, of course, the clock watching, the formidable clock watching of this event was just painful. And I poured this glass of wine. It was like, this this will cure my upset this will this will you know appease the anger that's boiling away inside of me and i sorry threw the first glass of wine in and it did nothing it didn't touch the sides it didn't relieve any anger so you know it's all good alcoholics no one is not enough so we've got to have a second one and i had the second one it was like drinking cat's piss and that is the first and only time in my life that i have not had that chain reaction of one leading to the second which leads to the third and each drink going down faster and faster and faster you know i never knew that was a clue that you had a drinking problem i just thought that was how i drank and for once it was the only time in my life i have not had that chain reaction and i you know now so damn grateful so damn grateful because where would i be if i had had that you know that allergic reaction that we talk about in aa i have no idea where i'd be but i didn't have it that day and then the next night you know i never told anybody so i hadn't got the gift of honesty at that point but uh, the next day i went to a meeting full of shame and remorse and self-loathing and and, you know and that's the night i heard the share that changed my life i just i just suddenly identified i just suddenly that just the i don't know what was in my ears the cloth in my ears got removed and the guy just the way he talked about how he felt inside how alcohol affected him, how his whole life revolved around alcohol, but he never knew it, you know, he, he had right. so much to learn in sobriety. And, and I remember just listening to that share going, but if you're an alcoholic, that means I'm an alcoholic and I don't want to be an alcoholic. Well, to be honest, in, in Scotland, almost all the meetings were so mild. My first meeting was entirely men, you know, when, when finally oh, I saw a woman, I practically abducted her and said, you will talk to me. The thing that got me under my skin, really, although it was all male and a lot of the men were very, very educated. And I, that really mattered to me. You know, I, I'd been to university and, and like all good drunks once is not enough. I'd been three times. And, and so I consider yeah, myself yes. far, far too clever for this drinking malarkey. You know? And, you know, the arrogance of that now. But at the time, I was I had more letters after my name than in it, darling. I cannot possibly be an alcoholic. And actually, a lot of these men had been very senior in their careers and had accomplished a lot. And they were able, they were very eloquent men. And that was the thing that got me because it was like, you are not complying with my definition of a drunk, you know, which is the park bench male, grubby coated drunk, you know. And 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 so my brain couldn't fathom that these intelligent, well spoken, well educated people were alcoholic. I say well spoken, well educated and, and intelligent. They were all those things, but they did have a really strong Scottish accent. So it was like I was trying to pick out the words that I could recognise. <laughs> so it was quite tough in those early it's a, it's an act of God that I stayed. You know, I, I didn't want to stay, I didn't want to be there. And yet I kept 
you know, just kept going. I don't know how it was for you. I'd grown up in a heavy drinking household. So my concept of normal drinking was very awry. But I also had this belief system that, you know, you would drink like I drank if you could, if you could get away with it, like I can get away with it. You know, there were so many really flawed logics in there. And we're funny enough, we were having this discussion in a meeting the other week, you know, because we've got quite a lot of newcomers at the moment. And so we was like trying to sort of get that sense of denial out of them. Like, did you drink for effect or did you drink for taste? And that, that's <laughs> such an important thing because right. it was like, I had my first drink when I was seven because my parents believe give kids alcohol, they won't grow up to be alcoholic. That's not a parenting philosophy I endorse. I am the evidence it doesn't work. But, uh, and, and it was a glass of wine and I hate it it was sour it was hideous I did not like it and I really didn't like alcohol through my teenage years you know so when other kids were getting into trouble with their parents for being drunk I was just largely quite saintly I smoked like a chimney but I didn't really go for the alcohol in a big way it was in my early 20s and I'd have a nice I know a nice pink glass of wine a bottle of wine and, and very quickly one became two and, and Friday became Friday and Saturday and then I met my husband he was a big drinker so then it became Friday Saturday Wednesday and and, and you know you know you know and by by towards the latter years of my drinking career just to, just to prove i never drank for taste because i i had to acquire the tolerance to the taste and drink past it that in i worked in libya for several years and libya is a dry country it's absolutely alcohol is absolutely legal there and yet you can buy it on the black market like drugs and in this country so it was like 300 pounds which i guess is about 400 dollars of vodka absolute vodka or whiskey that was the only choice you had and you had no control over the flavor the brand or anything you just got what you gave your money you got what you were given and hoped it wasn't water and uh, and the other thing you could get there was beer bottles of alcohol-free beer so i had this this habit of getting my vodka and, and splashing it into a, a can of beer and then i would have a normal inverted commas beer but of course you had no control over the, the vodka that you got and they often brought you flavored vodkas and one of the really popular ones was vanilla vodka oh god yeah <laughs> now we have something called ambrosia custard in this country we're trying to drink custard flavored beer just proves I could drink it. <laughs> I didn't drink it for the taste. <laughs> there are people who, who drink it. I think there are people who drink for taste and effect. There, you know, there's all sorts of combinations, but ultimately it's can you relate to the feelings and the symptoms of another person with alcoholism? Do you lose control after that first drink? Uh, you know, of either eventually or you know, in that moment. And it's different for different people. The whole thing about speeding up. So my first drink would go in really, really slowly, you know, and I'd think, well, how can I be an alcoholic? Because I can make this one glass of wine last an hour, but the next one had a half-life and the next one would have a half-life. And I lived in a flat, you know, towards the end of my drinking and I, I would start off with a glass of wine at my table and then by the end of the night, I'm just drinking straight from the bottle. <laughs> and somehow I'd you know, because I just couldn't get it in fast enough. Yeah. It's just nuts. Yeah, your your standards. You have these standards, and then they slowly erode. And that that is a you know they, we say like most people change their behavior to meet their goals, and alcoholics change their goals to meet their behavior. And that's exactly right. How did you discover that you were suffering from symptoms of PTSD? I was 18 months sober when I was diagnosed with PTSD. So I I couldn't understand why I was seeing other people come into the fellowship, start to work the program and start to get well. Whereas I 
wasn't drinking and I was doing my best to work the program, but I woke up every single day almost suicidal, you know, in a really dark space. And my life had gone, you know, my, my husband left very, very abruptly and it, it, I lost everything overnight. Well, in, in the next, you know, subsequent weeks, I learned an awful lot of things that I wish I'd never learned. The whole thing, because I was drinking, of course, I wasn't processing the trauma of that. I wasn't, pro- you know, getting into that heavy grief that, that you ordinarily would. All I was doing by drinking was deferring it. So when I sobered up, that all had to arrive. But I, I now know I have CPTSD. So I'd grown up in a very chaotic home. We, we'd bounced around the world. We moved countries a lot. I lost my pets, my bedroom, my toys, and often very abruptly. So I never learned how to grieve. All I ever learned how to do was stuff stuff down. So when it finally happened again when I was 41, it was just a repetition of, of a, you know, a lifelong sort of endurance of, of this kind of repeated grief. And I just couldn't take it anymore. I think I, I just totally broke down. So I, you know, and I kept going to the doctor and saying, you know, I just wish I was dead all the time. It doesn't matter whether things are going my way, whether they're not going my way, just nothing seems to be hooking up. And it was my sponsor, you know, who's just said, you know, you're so clinically depressed and, and you know, you really need some serious outside help. And bless her, you know, she, with love, she didn't, you know, she wasn't giving up on me. And that was that, you know, I, I got the diagnosis and from there I was able to get some access and specialist help. So I was about two and a half years sober when I suddenly felt everything turning around. I no longer woke up you know, I used to wake up every morning so disorientated, not understanding why I was waking up in this bedroom and not in my home and all sorts of flashbacks. But my flashbacks were going back to happy places. So then when I was coming to, I was having to re-grieve to understand why I was right here right now. So it was very peculiar. And odd things would trigger a, a flashback, like telegraph poles and kinks in roads and things like that. So it was very, very intrusive. So it was about two and a half years sober when I finally sort of finished that therapy and, and felt like I had my fun planet Earth. And then, you know, the steps started to, re- the promises started to kick in slowly slowly and I started to feel like I was a member of the human race again and and that life wasn't so bad after all and uh, and, and I was starting to have moments of total calm and, and you know serenity came a little bit later but it was you know it was, a, it was a good two and a half years before I felt like getting sober was worth it I used to spend a lot of my time saying I did not get sober to feel like this and, and not understand why I felt so rotten it's and I've seen, remarkable seen you seen stayed. others yeah mm, it is remarkable and I've met but I always put that into my share when I do you know public speaking because everybody expects to sort of level out within about 18 months and I, I just I didn't feel like I'd got out of the starting books I had a lot of yets and I believed absolutely they were going to happen to me so it was that fear really that kept me going yeah and the for people who are listening yets are things that have yet to happen and we, we call those yets and they're real how did you decide to hike across America how did this come about Oh, well, yeah, very odd. Is it odd as it got? It's one of my favorite sayings. A friend of mine in the fellowship had watched a film called Wild and she kept going on and on. And it's very unlike her to be quite, you know, for whatever reason, she kept going on and on. So in the end, it was like, right, fine. You have to watch it again. I'll cook dinner. We'll make a thing of it. And so that's what happened. And then <laughs> they should now go and read the book. And I did, she must have known something I didn't. So I went and read the book. And of course, you know, I'm a true alcoholic. I just get obsessed with things, <laughs> random things. So I watched the film and I read the book and I read six more books. And and it, and then by then I'm also watching YouTube videos and and again it wasn't for me I didn't identify with these people they're much younger than me and all of this stuff and then I'm in the bath literally in the bath and, and on the thumbnails on YouTube it had how to apply for a PCT permit 
and I had no idea you needed one. And I clicked on it and this guy was explaining the process and he said, there's only one day a year you can apply. So of course I Google it and it's that bloody day in three hours time. So I just ran upstairs all naked, very overweight, tap, 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 learned everything I needed in those three hours, like how to put off fire, how to start a fire, <laughs> you know, all of these leave no trace principles, all of these certificates. And then three hours later, I got thrown into the lottery and got one of the lucky tickets, you know, thousands apply and only 3,000 people get tickets. And, and I think that year, at least 12,000 had applied. You know when you're on the right path because things just go smooth. Things just just aren't hard work. And, and all of a sudden it was like, right, I'm going to go do this. And I'm really not fit or anything. And, and the only training I could think to do was eat lots of cake because it was like, well, I'm going to need the calories. <laughs> so I just ate even more cake. Naturally, um, yes. So it was a big shock. It was a huge shock to the system because I, I did not know anything about hiking. I'd never slept. I had slept in a tent once when I was married and I turned, I woke up in the morning and I looked at my husband. And I said, you ever put me in a tent again? I'll divorce you. <laughs> uh, so I was not a fan of camera. This whole thing was ludicrous. But, you know, I did it. And that is purely down to the fortitude and everything that I've learned in AA, you know, about just one day at a time. And if you can't do one day, you do five minutes. And if you can't do five minutes, you do one minute. And if you think you're scared, then send up a prayer and see where that takes you. And that's literally how I did it because I was terrified of everything. We don't have wildlife like you have in the States. We have to go to a zoo to see the dangerous things and you've got it everywhere. <laughs> so yeah, so it was a steep learning curve. And uh, and I, and I, you know, it, I really got my self-esteem back doing that after a lot of years of not having much by way of self-esteem. So I, I wouldn't recommend anyone did it, but I had a lot of fun afterwards talking about it. Did you... So tell us about, real quick for people who don't know, tell us about the Pacific Crest Trail. How, where so it, starts. it is officially the world's longest trail. It was when I walked in. It may have changed now. And it's 2,653 miles from the Mexican border to the Canadian border on the West Coast. You go through the desert, then you go through the High Sierra, and then Yosemite, Northern California, Oregon, uh, and then the beauty that is Washington. But by then, you're so sick of it. It's like, I don't care that it's beautiful. I just want the safe. <laughs> It's a, it's a very long, very arduous trail and very fast, very fit people can do it in about four and a half months. But I, I took five and a half. Wow. So you decide to you decide to hike this. You take all these classes. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this. It's all working. You arrive on this trail, right? The, yeah. the, you arrive on this trail and you start to walk it. Did you get there and arrive and go, what have I done? Like, were you, Or were you like, okay, yes, we're going to do this? Yeah, no. I mean, the, the pandemic was just starting up. So it was a bit confusing. You know, should we stay or should we go? And I'd, I, I'd given up my place and I was due to fly, I think, on the Tuesday. And then Donald Trump Trump had uh, banned Europeans from traveling. But he, he gave a window of like 48 hours or something. And that just gave me enough time to go, right, grab my bags, I'm going to fly. Because I was convinced this was going to be over in a couple of months. I was just, you know, this was just a great big load of hype. Uh, and of course, none of us had a clue what was about to happen. So I arrived a few days ahead of my schedule in San Diego. And then again, the power of AA, somebody in the fellowship says, oh, do you want to ride down to the border? And I was just like, oh, hell yeah. Because I didn't have a clue I was going to get there. I didn't have anything figured out i was so naive oh i didn't God. have half my equipment together oh my i didn't have an american sim 
card so I couldn't use my phone. And uh, so I spent like three days running around San Diego and then that's it. I got a ride down, dumped at the border and it was just like, I'd never, you know, I never had a backpack that big in my life. And I'm staggering around like an idiot thinking, God, this is what it's like to be drunk sober. <laughs> you know, I just couldn't walk in a straight line. And this guy comes up to me about, about an hour in and he says, you know, you've got your, your sleeping bag outside your bag, outside your pack. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, any idiots do that. He said, what happens if it rains? Then your sleeping bag is going to get wet. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm just a walking billboard of idiocy. You know, I don't know what I'm doing at all. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, I, I I didn't think I'd started until I think it was lunchtime or something. And I mean, I managed to stagger out seven miles. And I know that Cheryl strayed in the book Wild. She had done six miles. And when I'd watched the film, I was like, six miles, how ridiculous is that? You know, I'd really scoffed. And of course, in reality, when I'm doing it, I live at 400 feet above sea level. And this is at 4,000 feet above sea level. Doesn't sound like a big difference, but trust me, it was. I'd only stopped smoking 10 weeks before. It was just, there was nothing about me or my situation that said, yeah, she's definitely going to make it to Canada. You know, this, this, I wasn't going to make it a week and camped up that first night and and you know there's nobody else and all these people kept walking past going hi hi and then just carried on walking and i was like oh please would someone just stay near me and of course no one did so it was a very quick introduction but the person that i'd uh, arrived at the border with they were very full of bravado i'm going to do 20 miles today and i'm going to end up here and i'm going to and they sounded so knowledgeable and then the next day this storm had, had blown in and and what americans were calling this really massive storm well i've lived in scotland so i was just like this yeah, just a bit wet you know <laughs> it's not it's not really a storm and um, it's all relative <laughs> and they were actually coming back towards me they'd literally gone one mile further down the path than i had so it was like okay so i've beaten one person this is a success i can go home now you know and that was literally like okay so i did seven and you know that person did eight and if i just do another seven today and oh god it was awful it was i was just it was you know you you'll know how it is when you see people come into recovery and they're full of ideas and plans and ambitions and you're like slow it down keep it simple just rein everything in drop the plans i was just like a brand new drunk you know i just didn't i was just full of yeah it's all going to be fine and i'm going to do x y and z and and reality was i did nothing like i imagined i was going to do i did it ugly but i did it stay tuned to hear more in just a moment hello friends line rock recovery is offering educational scholarship money to students who are pursuing careers in substance use disorder treatment many of us myself included owe a huge shed of gratitude to the incredible professional counselors who helped us on our recovery journey lion rock wants to highlight the need for more counselors through the lion rock recovery scholarship which is offering four lucky students the opportunity to win 500 the application deadline is august 15th 2022 and the winners will be announced on september 15th 2022 please go to lionrockrecovery.com resources slash scholarship to apply you know what's interesting about the way that you so like in my head I'm and and it's very much akin like analogous to what we talk about with recovery so like in my head I'm like okay well I would have you know taken this course and planned this out blah 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 I'm like right like done all these plans and whatever because that's how I handle my fear but what's interesting and what is the same with recovery is it's better if you just show up and do it because if you have all the information sometimes that's what stops you from doing it and you probably wouldn't have done it had you understood what 
you were doing. And the beauty is that you didn't have any idea. And because you got there and had to figure it out, you did it. And that that's where AI kicked in. Because the people that were full of these plans, you know, they nailed down plans. I'm going to walk this distance today. I'm going to walk that distance. They got demoralized so quickly, so, so quickly. And so they'd quit. Once you get demoralized, your chances of quitting are huge. Whereas I, I had zero expectations of my own ability. It was like anything that went my way, I was like, oh, that's that was lucky. <laughs> you know, it was just I and but AA had instilled me, which was I can't walk as fast as these people, but that is their side of the street. Just concentrate on what you can do. Don't worry about other people. Because I felt like everybody, you know, that first big hill I had to climb at Hauser Creek, which is just it's tiny compared to all the other mountains you have to climb, but it's the first one. So it felt like Everest to me. And I pretty much greeted every single hiker that day hello <laughs> oh hello and I just walked about 10 meters and then just stood there going I hurt so much I'm too tired I can't cope and then I walk another 10 meters and uh, hello hello <laughs> you know oh it was just ludicrous and uh, but I look back and I think well that you know AA just teaches you that just take it five minutes at a time and literally you will get there in your own time this is not a race it is the classic hare and the tortoise that those of us who slow down take it in listen to the advice given generally make it. The rest, people with their grand plans and ambitions, and, and they're like, right, I've stopped drinking now. I've got to get on with my life. It's like, yeah, I don't think you've got great chances. I mean, hey, I am often wrong, and I may be wrong on this time, but generally my experience is slow down, take it all in. There are a couple things that you write about in your book, right? Your book, I should back up. Did you intend on writing a book about this experience? I definitely intended to write a book when I came back. I didn't intend to write a book incorporating in the 12 steps. But once I came back and I, you know, I looked at my diary and I looked at my own emotional journey, it was like, oh my God, this is, you know, it just maps the 12 steps, you know, how my mood was, the how you transition, you know, because I always argue you feel your way through the steps. You don't tick the steps off. So, you know, it's a process of learning to become honest and, and start to admit that you're out of control and you don't know what you're doing and then feeling that hope of actually maybe I can do this maybe I'm not as bad as all that you know and then through to I've got to make a decision now do I stay on the trail do I go you know there's this pandemic on what is the next right thing for me to do and you know that leap of faith and then once you get into the rhythm and you've learned the basics of, of hiking and camping and all the rest of it and surviving you know then you've got time to stop panicking and actually really take a long hard look at what the hell are you doing so I just felt you know when I read my diary back it was oh my god I've just followed the format of the steps so it's a very healing thing that once you realize once it hits home what alcoholism is and how awful it is for everybody not just you it does lead to quite a long period of depression and sadness and I think that's pretty normal and that's why step nine is a bit further down the road you know so when I'm sort of four months into my steps I'm, I'm into my journey I am very low morale is very low I'm very lonely at this point you know and I'm very finding it very hard to go day by day emotionally as much as physically so it, it just seemed to me to make sense to write about the two in conjunction how did you battle boredom obviously it was incredibly difficult to do the trail you know it's it's difficult for anyone at any stage of fitness, but the boredom piece, I would think would creep in the thoughts, the racing thoughts, that kind of thing and being alone. What did you do to, to manage that? Yeah, the boredom is huge because I'm I'm terrible at managing boredom. It's it I, I really am. I know that now. And the boredom is I'm glad you said it because I, I said something the other day. I was like, actually, it's probably the most boring thing I've ever done in my life. And they were like, really? 
And I was like, yeah, because you walk and, and the views change at two miles an hour. So they really don't change very much unless you fall down the hill. And then it's grass guy, grass guy, you know. Um, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, boredom was huge. So I, I pretty much had a structure. It changed over the course of the, the hike. But um let's say early stages i you know in the mornings everything hurts so the first hour you're pretty preoccupied with the physical pain and then the body just sort of says well i'm just going to cope with that and put it to one side and then so i do my morning meditation so i i uh, this sounds nuts i know but i i took with me a load of i downloaded a load of aa podcasts so i'd listen to between one or three depending on my mood and i'd try and go for uplifting funny ones if i could and so i'd listen to those and then i'd chat away out loud because i'm on my own you know there's nobody around so I can literally sometimes I'm the chair at the meeting I'm the chair at the meeting I am doing the feedback at the meeting and then you know I know that's the best show I've ever heard oh well thank you yeah and I'm having a full-on theatre chatted away so so that would be pretty much the mornings and then in the afternoon again it it varied and it changed over time so towards the second half of the hike I really enjoyed my mornings a lot more once I got through the initial couple of hours of pain I'd almost go into total serenity and I can only say that I experienced on the trail for the first time this literal peace of mind there was nothing going on upstairs I was totally present totally serene totally aware still could be in physical pain and so i'd want that to last as long as possible so i never i just allowed the mornings to pass that way it was just with total quiet in my head which is something i've never had in my life and then in the afternoons where things would get tough physically again i would put the podcast on or audio books or so on and so forth so i would probably spend a couple of hours the one a couple of key skills that i learned out there was that i'm i love ruminating i love sitting in the past and going over and over and over and retelling it and redrawing traumatizing it and i really learned that ability to go enough now but well, we've had your fun but stop so that that was quite good so i'd allow myself periods of rumination and then i'd be arguing with you know invisible people that aren't there um you know so i was absolutely bon- naturally batshit crazy but it, you know you have the freedom where you have, because no one's going to see you you so you might as well you know what else are you going to do and so it did help process quite a lot of stuff and and a lot of stuff came up that i hadn't thought about in years so there was a lot of processing going on so it changed over time but boredom was a huge there were so many times when i sat there and i said god i'm so board and yeah there's only so many audio books you can listen to there's only so many aa shows you can listen to boredom was a bigger problem in the second half of the trip than the first half but it's like anything else by the time you've got to the second half it's like well the goal you could start to see the goal the end game you could start to think for that so it kind of does pull you through but yeah it was boring (laughs) it's it's actually it's really incredible though because you know there are so few circumstances in our lives these days where we get such a chunk of time to allow ourselves or force ourselves rather to be bored for that period of time and to experience that and experience coming out the other side that serenity you were talking about and the clear mind and it's very very difficult to create that same scenario if not impossible in any other given situation so it's cool because you gave yourself unknowingly of course that opportunity to experience that boredom and to work through it i don't i mean i don't suffer with boredom as much out of the wilderness as I did in the wilderness you know I'd struggle with procrastination <laughs> you know but uh, which I didn't struggle with out there it was like just get on with it just get on with it um, interesting. I, I didn't procrastinate yeah it was really interesting how your, your characteristics changed so boredom is is less of a problem for me now because now of course I can always find a hundred things to do because I've lived such a simple life I, it's almost like I get overwhelmed very quickly 
Were there a lot of temptations for drinking? I would think that that would be a really easy thing to do. Like to me, I'm like, well, yeah, you put yourself in that situation and like, it's going to be pretty easy to stay sober. The biggest surprise was one, I, I'm one of those alcoholics that unfortunately has to stay away from all mind altering substances. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, marijuana is legal still in the UK anyway. Uh, not that that makes it unobtainable, but I was really surprised in the States, uh, especially in those States, you know, they've got all this, whatever they call it, but it's edibles, isn't it? And, and they're almost like candy and they look like candy and it's in packaging that's childlike. And, and I stayed away from that because obviously it's just not worth the risk for me. And, and marijuana is a, a part of my 20s. So it's just like, no, nothing like that is on my agenda. So and when you're in that much physical pain, you're obviously very bored, very, sorry, vulnerable. And so, yeah, so the temptation was there. And also you go into towns and you're resupplying. So, you know, every seven to 10 days, I'd go into town, stay in a hotel. And of course, it's still there. Now, a couple of things, there was the pandemic on. Uh, so that meant that most places, public places that you'd socialise in was closed. So that made life easy for me. And that also meant that the wilderness had been largely abandoned. So there was very few of us out there. So there wasn't the big social scene that you'd get in a normal year, which I would stay away from anywhere. I wasn't there to, to party hard. But early on, right before the pandemic kicked off, you know, there was a lot of social people and there was this big party going on in one of the cabins that I was staying in. And I just went, I just snuck off to an AA meeting. But there is, you know, no one's looking. You're not accountable anymore no one's going to know you know that old devil is always there you know I would go to a meeting I would contact people the minute I checked into a hotel I would then try and find a quiet space and go on to zoom and, and of course with the pandemic starting in the UK just a bit faster than America it was brilliant because all of my sort of fellows were on zoom so I could log into the meetings and still see their faces which was an unexpected delight it wasn't something I'd planned for and then the women's international meeting on was 24-7 so I could check into that anytime it didn't matter what time I arrived in town. I could just plug straight in, have it in the background, listen to it. So yeah, so drink and drugs, there was a lot of it around. That was the big shock was how much of it there was around, actually. But we live in a program that says we have to exist in societies. You know, the UK is a massive drinking culture, full stop. And we have to live here sober, whether we like it or not. So it was just the same principles apply over there. But it's, you know, it's the basics. Stick with the winners. As soon as I got into town, you know, early on, I made contact with fellow AAs. And, and that's so easy to do. In, in modern society. I didn't know them, but they were just as loving and generous as, as anywhere else in the world. That's the beauty of the network. And, you know, when people talk about alternatives to AA or 12-step, you know, I'm all for whatever works. The beauty of the 12-step network is that it's everywhere and it's so easy to plug in. And it's, you know, it's the same people you would have partied with, except now they're sober. And, you know, there's just this camaraderie that I've, I haven't experienced elsewhere, even in religion. I mean, there was one town, I won't say where, because obviously it wasn't lawful as it was, but they were having car park meetings. So it wasn't even planned. It was just a spontaneous gathering of recovering alcohol alcoholics and I just happened to be there and so and I happened to be with an AA when this happened and they said come with me we're going to a meeting it was brilliant so at the meeting I shared you know I'm in town for two days and it'd be amazing if they do this again tomorrow here's my number please contact me I would just I'll be down here I'll find a way to get here and they just said oh in that case we'll have one tomorrow it'll be this time at this location make sure you're there and they just organized an AA meeting just because I happened to ask for one what was the most unexpected lesson you know your book talks about the lessons that you learned doing this. What was the most unexpected like lesson that you learned along this journey? That it's possible to walk across America <laughs> whilst fat 40 something and female on your own. That was the yeah, that was the biggest the, the biggest shock to me because I, I you really wouldn't have put money on me achieving this at all. The other big thing 
is actually it's only only just starting to realize it in the last probably six to eight months. And funny enough, I'd asked somebody this that I'd met who had done it before I went, was how much it changes you inside. It has given me a level of self-esteem I've never had. And I'm constantly reminded that no matter what people throw at me, I've always got that. But I walked across America on my own. And once you've done something like that, no one can take that away from me. No one can put that down. And then you know, people say, oh, well, I could do that if I wanted to. Well, go and do it then. Don't ever say you could do it just go do it because don't diminish what I've done because it for me it was just such a phenomenal thing you know more people succeed at climbing Everest than succeed at walking across America and you know that's the wow factor and it, and it's you know it's not just walking it, it, it's the whole experience so in terms of that that inside that courage that I've it's given me a sense of courage so it's not that I don't get anxious it's not that I don't have fear but I just have that inner knowing that between me and God as long as I keep that relationship alive then you know god as i understand it not the conventional god because i don't i don't believe in that god but you know the, the higher power that i choose to call god because i'm fundamentally very lazy and it's one syllable but if i keep that channel alive then i can really live an unexpected life and a very different life from what i imagined a sober life would be and i don't it's just like i say it's just giving me a level of self-esteem that takes my breath away sometimes because i never imagined feeling like that on the inside and that you know and that again i credit aa i totally credit AA because were it not for AA were it not for the 12 steps the whole thing would never have happened and and so you know it's yeah that's the unexpected thing it's just so big and so profound I can't really articulate it well and it has fundamentally changed who I am you know inside when I got sober they told me that the way to build self-esteem is to do esteemable acts and I originally remember thinking like oh so I should open an orphanage in India you know like esteemable acts I don't know I mean it was like what's an esteemable act and over time I like you I traveled for me I traveled and went abroad to school in Europe by myself and I traveled all these places by myself and as silly as that as so many people do that but that feeling of you know I got lost in Europe and like figured my way out and the experience of I did a I did a triathlon I was fully smoking I was you know overweight like and I did an Olympic triathlon and that feeling of like oh my god I did it like you're talking about it's it is really something that no one can take that away from you because you have the experience of getting through those just what you believe to be unlivable moments and you still live through them and i do i think especially as women achieving you know those physical tests that we can put ourselves through and those achievements that are beyond you know i've achieved i've achieved things in work and in school and things like that but they didn't feel the same as the physicality the ones that i've pushed myself through so i i really i think that this was one huge esteemable act and also one act i feel like you worked you literally worked the steps haha also steps across like by doing this it was literally that took you from my life is unmanageable i'm powerless literally not knowing what the hell you were doing not having the gear all the way through to the completion it was like you literally worked through the steps on this trail it's really incredible I think one of the, the things that astonished me that I learned actually was right at, towards the end, I'm hiking with a guy called Jeff. And, and so the last few weeks, were, I, I was exhausted, as you can imagine. I was in so much pain. And one of Jeff's friends had 
so generously they had brought all my food to the trail to save me the time of going into a, into a town and shopping they wouldn't take a penny for it you know they were just unbelievable kindness these people and they had wanted to do the the pct and they had cancelled because of the pandemic and the, the woman had said to me a very serious question about hiking and my initial reaction was well don't ask me i know nothing and that was my instant reaction and she just looked at me and she said you know everything you know everything you have done this for nearly 170 nights and i was like oh, you're right you're right you know i'm i do have an opinion though i can talk with some semblance of of intelligence about hiking and camping in america but it really woke me up to this imposter syndrome that i have and i didn't realize just how chronic and how crippling it was so my next adventure which is i'm three weeks away from starting is to really go and attack all this imposter syndrome because if i can beat that head demon you know where else can i go because it, it's so crippling and it's so suffocating and it's like aa gives you the tools to say it's your job to conquer these things you know we're not going to make it easy for you we can't but once you've become aware that you've got a problem it's your responsibility to deal with that and that imposter syndrome is, is still so chronic and, and it's such a female afflicted illness as well i meet so many women with it and it holds us back and even one of my sponsors was over at the, the weekend and she was like i have just learned that men look at a job application and if they can do 60 percent of the job they'll go and apply for the job whereas women will look at it and go oh, i can't do that so i won't apply and that's imposter syndrome in action and it was like right this is my mission you know this is my next thing is to go and actually and i've got another book brewing and and it's everywhere i never wanted to go and it, it's so close to happening now and it's to step into imposter syndrome and, and step into one's inferiority complexes and just do it anyway and that is the gift of of self-learning and again aa has given me self-awareness that i can actually listen to people's feedback about me and understand something about myself instead of being defensive or antagonistic you know which is how i used to handle things now it's like well blimey you know i'm learning all the time it's great what's the next adventure you have planned the next adventure is in england which is amazing and i am going to england as you know has a very long history and because of our long history we have some ridiculous placed names uh, you know villages and things like that and a few years ago i went up to scotland and i found 103 places that that sound awful or very rude and very they would make a 12 year boy laugh you know and england has the same so i am going to go and do a grand tour in a van and do van life which is it's been taken off in, in the uk for the last couple of years because of the pandemic our vans are nothing like your rvs our vans are proportional to the size of our country so they're very small and so this is terrifying uh, the idea of living in a van but i'm going to go around the country and i'm going to go to all these towns that sound awful so i'm going to start in a town called shitterton and i'm going to finish in a town called weedon and uh, you can imagine what the others are going to sound like and some of them are very rude indeed some of them are they used to be rude and no longer are because you know words have changed over time and some of them had old english names which are still tremendous i was in uh, this weekend i was in golden minge which is a terribly rude phrase here and that's a genuine town albeit it's changed its name in recent years but, you know there's a whole load of adventure there and at the same time i'm going to journal about going and doing things that scare you rigid and it's not type one fun it's type two fun and it's going to be very much focused on women and fear because when you look at books about tackling fear and anxiety they're either written from a therapeutic trauma-based induced approach and then the other extreme is 
generally it's men writing it and they tend to be SAS alpha male types. Well, that's marvellous. But, you know, women in other days are probably so are dying of anxieties and insecurities. There doesn't seem to be a right lot there about how to work on your self-esteem. You know, there's a lot of anxiety-based top-down stuff, but there's very little bottom-up stuff. So I, no pun intended, but there'll be plenty of pun intended in the book. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty much where I'm going with it. What's the difference between type one fun and type two fun? So type one fun is stuff that gets your journaling going. You get on a roller coaster, at the end of it, you're laughing your head off, your knees are still knocking, and, and a few hours later, you're over it. It's like an instant hit. It's very compulsive. Type two fun is pretty much guaranteed to be miserable from start to finish, but hey, the pleasure in telling people about it afterwards. So walking across America is a classic type two fun because it was pretty much miserable 99.9% of the time. But there's lots of things starting to evolve in this country while swimming is taking off. So you go and swim. I mean, this country is cold in winter, but you go swimming in lakes and seas and it's miserable. There's no two ways about it. There's nothing fun in that whatsoever. You're idiots for trying. But afterwards, people have that same effect of feeling just a lot more cleansed and healed inside. I was talking to a woman the other week and, and I get this myself. People give me credit for walking across America on the grounds that I'm female and I did it alone. So I get an accolade that our male counterparts don't. And, and it's something I look at in the book that we live in a society that's very male-based history writing. So through hiking is still done by men. You say adventurer, we'll always think men. If I put my TV on now, all the travel programs that are out there and adventurous and, and dirty and difficult always men. So we're still living in that, in that contradictory sort of society. So I really want to go and look at how women can get out there and quietly go and enjoy type two fun. You know, it's different for us in really peculiar ways. Our, our, the way we interact with public spaces is very different. Yeah. Well, it's an incredible story. It's incredibly inspiring. And the synergy with sobriety and program and any type of recovery or healing, whatever that may be, is fantastic. So thank you for doing it. Even though you had no idea what you were getting yourself into, thank you for doing <laughs> it. And thank you for writing about it. And I'm really, really excited for your next book and your next adventures. It will be very, very exciting to see that. So please keep us posted. Where can people find your book? Uh, right. It's available on Amazon and for the anti-Amazon people, also now World of Books. So it's called Everything You Ever Taught Me and uh, by Person Irresponsible. That's me. And uh, so, yeah, so it's available in ebook form and also paperback and, and it's global. So you just log into your local Amazon. If you do it now, the funds would be really great this week. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yes, do it now. All right. Well, thank you so much, Person Irresponsible PI. Very much appreciate you and look forward to your next book. Superb. Thank you. Scott, what did you think about that episode? Well, this might surprise you, but I loved it. We are actually, um, we're taking the podcast on the road to the Pacific Crest Trail. We're going to be doing all of our interviews from the wide open spaces so it's gonna. There's gonna be wind issues. And, yeah, wind uh, issues. We're gonna be crying a lot. We're gonna be out issues. of breath a lot. Yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah. crying. A lot of crying. Yeah, <laughs> more crying than normal yeah. is on the podcast. I would actually like do something like that if I did not have kids and a job. I can't take <laughs> four months. Like, yeah. Then that's the people doing it fast. I can't take six months. Like I, I need a week long challenge. Well, that's, I, I went down this road at one point because you can do, they have like segments. A lot of these trails like this, they'll just have segments and they'll have people who do it like over their lifetime. Right. So like they don't do it in one go, you know, like on the Appalachian trail, people will yeah, just, yeah, yeah. This, they'll just do the Smokies yeah. section and that takes about 10 days. That is more. Okay. Durable. But it, are you, do you like really feel good about that if you do that? I mean, you still at the end of 
the day, you would have hiked over 2000 miles or whatever it is, which yeah, is like, pretty rad. That's like over the course of my life, I would have hiked 2000 miles too. But I mean, at my local mall, I have walked over 3000 miles. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, I once walked a mile and a half to get a bag of meth and a mile and a half back. Okay. Not, I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to, I yeah. didn't want to brag, but that's here we are. quite a feat. I mean, that is quite are. a feat because I did needed you zero permits? <laughs> did you smoke the meth while you were there? Cause then the I, walk I home did not. I did would not. have been more daunting. Certainly. Yes, that's very true. No, I did not. I waited. <laughs> I waited. What so. patience you had, you know, I yeah, think, right? I think, you know, when you hear about her story of perseverance, I think it's kind of matches up pretty closely with you making it a mile and a half and back without even starting to do the math. You know what I mean? I mean, look, I didn't want to overshadow her story. That was kind of why I didn't share that. And to begin with, I didn't right. really like, you know, like, oh, guess what I've done. But, you know, yeah. I mean, call a spade a spade, right? <laughs> 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 it's a beautiful story that you have. You know, I get, I mean, hers Thank is you. really inspiring. I think especially yeah, yeah, yeah. for, for women out there who are thinking about doing something big, her story yeah. is big, just as big. Your story. Of big <laughs> okay. Do you remember in Borat when mm. he wants to marry was it Pamela Anderson? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's Pamela Anderson. Yeah. Okay, Pamela Anderson. When he wants to marry her mm. and he get they put a burlap sack over her head. <laughs> if I told my father that I was going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail by myself, he would full Borat. Like I would have a, a burlap sack over my head and he would be like, you are going zero places. You have survived. You have, if you're a cat with nine lives, you're way over. Like there is just no way you're going to be by yourself in the wilderness. I guess that's fair. But for anybody who still has a few lives left, it yeah, yeah, seems yeah. You, pretty rad. Go, girl. I think they should do it 100%. And you know, here's something. Does the British accent ever become not charming? Is that is that a thing that happens? The best part about a British accent is you can say anything and there's just a level of class above mm. An American mm -hmm. accent that you have, and it it like it doesn't have to be real. It's just like it's somehow my like I was smoke. I'm not gonna do that accent. <laughs> Please um, do it. Please do it. Just like no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As soon as I started to talk, I was like immediate mistake. Immediate mistake. <laughs> I surrender. Abort mission. <laughs> no, but like they can say the most, you know, whatever. Like they're smoking math or whatever it is, and. It sounds just like more elegant. I was headed out to the bin to do away with my aluminium. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So you're recycling. See, it sounds yeah. so much better. Yeah, much, much better. Much, much better. better. I love that she was so unprepared. Like it just cracked me up that she mm -hmm. showed up and was like, I don't even have the right gear. I don't even know where I'm going. She didn't even know how she was going to get to the border. And that to me was so as funny as it is, it's also so analogous to how sobriety is because you just like, I know I need to go there. I have no idea how to get there. So I'm going to call some person in recovery and be like, Hey, by the way, I need to do this. Do you know how to do like, <laughs> are you, you know, I mean, so many times I've called my sponsor and like, so I may or may not have slept with two cousins in the same family. <laughs> have you dealt with this before? Because I have not. And she's like, oh yeah, no, just kidding. She hadn't dealt with it. It was very traumatic for everyone. Didn't know that they were related, but... Not your cousins, just yours. to clarify. I think no, we no, need no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I slept with two guys yeah. in a 
relatively short period of time. Relatively short period of time. Well, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to decide what's a short period of time for other people, but it was short enough that each one of them was very angry about the scenario. And I remember being like, well, I've never dealt with this before. I'm going to reach out for help. And she was like, you have to tell the truth. I'm like, what? I have to tell the truth. What? Holy shit. It was like getting to the Pacific Crest Trail. I had no idea how I was going to get there, but turns out, you know, you just ask people what to do and sobriety leads the way. That was a terrible example. <laughs> no, I think that's the worst example. It's the funniest thing. That's actually in her book is there's a part where there's cousins. It's a- I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. So in the episode, we started and we were talking about Pacific Crest Trail, but in my brain, I had the Appalachian Trail in my head. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't get how she went from Mexico <laughs> to Washington. <laughs> it doesn't even touch on that side how of the did country. She get to Kentucky, okay? <laughs> Pacific Crest, you idiot. Pull it together. <laughs> Here's the deal. The good news is, as like I tell my children, there are some thoughts we keep to ourselves. I'm not so good at that, but... I did it long enough so that I didn't embarrass myself in that episode. Okay. Okay, (laughs) Ashley, you're going to have to sit down. I think that's good. And and I, you know, in the same way, you know, she didn't know what she was doing. You just, (laughs) I'm just, I'm just here. Rigorous honesty, baby. Rigorous honesty. Rigorous honesty. I figured out halfway through what was happening. (laughs) Well, that's a perfect, that's a perfect segue because if you have any young people in your life that have rigorous honesty, that have just character for days who are trying to make a difference in this, this recovery space, Lion Rock is doing something pretty cool. Ashley, can you tell them about this this very cool thing that Lion Rock has going? Right now, if you are a high school senior or a freshman in college and you are interested in the field of addiction, psychology, mental health, and you have some experience with the topic, whether personally or through family or otherwise, we are giving out a $500 scholarship The deadline is August 15th. So go to lionrockrecovery.com slash resources slash scholarship to fill out the application and win yourself some money. It would be very nice. And we want to bring more of these great counselors into the world or whatever your aspirations in in the mental health field. Very, very needed. We need you. Well, you're also going to need a lot of mental health after what happens next. Ashley, are you ready? I'm holding on. I'm holding on. This because this was kind of an epic episode, I've yeah. dug deep into the are you ready for this? Okay. Okay. A slice of apple pie is two dollars and fifty cents in Jamaica and three dollars in the Bahamas. These are the pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> oh no. Oh god. Oh. It's like I know it's coming and it just hits every time. That one was a wave in me. It felt bad when I was doing it. I didn't. Oh, the pirates of the. <laughs> Ooh. The pirates of the Caribbean. The you know. pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. Oh, that oh. hurt. Oh. That's that's type two fun for you. You know. That's type two fun. You it hurts, and then you it don't enjoy afterwards. it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't enjoy it at the time, but afterwards, I felt some joy, some <laughs> some relief. Really, you said at least I wasn't the one who said that. That's what you get to do at the end of that, and that's kind of nice. Hundred <laughs> percent. I go to bed at night knowing I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just told the story about sleeping with two cousins <laughs> in a very short period of time, but thank God I didn't tell the bad pie joke, right? I mean, that's what counts. It is what counts at the yeah. end of the day. At I, the end of the day, my children <laughs> will feel so much better that I didn't tell that joke and the other story instead. Oh, God. Well, we're rooting for you as always this week. We hope it's a, just a fantastic week. And, you know, should get some pie in the Caribbean. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Hang in there, guys. I'm, I'm rooting for you. I'm hanging in. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life. <laughs> 